this chapter is a little bit like, you know that scene, most of you guys have probably seen the Titanic, I'm guessing. That scene where everybody's having a great time and they're dancing and they're eating dinner and we all know how the movie ends. And so you're watching it and everything is great and everybody's dressed fancy and you're just watching it knowing that tragedy is about to strike. When you read through the first two chapters, everything is so beautiful and it's amazing. And you know that Genesis 3 will come, but this is like our last, like perfect, innocent, not perfect, but innocent chapter we have before sin enters in in Genesis 3. So we're gonna do kind of a flyover at the beginning. If you missed last week, Pastor Matt went through Genesis 1, talked a lot about creation and science and all of that, had to jam pack a lot of things in. Um, I've been a little bit curious. I've gone back and listened from a few years ago. He was talking about going through Genesis, so I've kind of been listening to those too. Um, this chapter deals with a little bit of creation in the beginning, and then it talks about men and women, our purpose, and then it talks about marriage. And so we will kind of, like I said, do a little flyover on the creation stuff. Since it was mainly covered last week, we will spend most of our time talking about um, man, man's purpose, women, and then marriage as well. So let's jump in and get started here. Chapter two, verse one. Thus the heavens and the earth were finished and all the host of them, and on the seventh day, God finished his work that he had done. And he rested on the seventh day from all his work that he had done. Verse three, so God blessed the seventh day and made it holy because on it, God rested from all his work that he had done in creation. Wasn't that he needed a rest. It wasn't that he was tired. He was establishing a gift for man, the Sabbath. He does take a look around. He appreciates what he's done. He stops to acknowledge it, acknowledge it. kind of gives us the example that, it is a healthy thing for us to stop, to Sabbath, to take a look at what God is doing in our lives, what he's doing all around us. In spite of how difficult things might do, we might be, we take a break, we stop. We acknowledge how good the Lord is. Sundays are a beautiful day for that, but really, I mean, it's one of those things that we should be doing every day, finding gratitude and, and um, rest at the end of a long day. But we do see that disordered priorities can get out of balance. Perhaps you know some people, they work too much and they don't find time for Sabbath and rest. And then the flip side of that, of that is there are people that rest too much, right? Then they can't actually fully enjoy Sabbath and rest. You can't actually fully enjoy it because you can't appreciate it. I remember back to a family vacation we took several years ago. It was one of the I was coming off one of the most difficult years professionally that I've ever had. And as soon as we could, we loaded up the car and we took off. I mean, I barely saw my family for like 10 months. When summer hit and we went on vacation, we loaded up the car, we hit Yosemite, we went and visited family in Southern California. We had the best time. Like nobody was on their phones. We were engaged. We were appreciating each other and the time we had together because the year before, man, we were grinding. We were working. And there are seasons like that and it's super good and it's healthy and it's important for our kids and our families, especially to see dads do that, to jump in and have a season where they're pushing hard. Verse four, 
These are the generations of the heavens and the earth when they were created in the day that the Lord God had made the earth and the heavens. Last week, um, Matt talked about heavens and earth are mentioned together. And he used the example of rap sheet and how if you take those two words apart, they could mean two so totally separate things, but together it means something different. And when we read earth and the heavens, it is the same thing. It is talking about the same thing each time here. Verse five, when no bush of the field was yet in the land and no small plant of the field had yet sprung up for the Lord God had not caused it to rain on the land and there was no man to work the ground and a mist was going up from the land and was watering the whole face of the ground. Then the Lord God formed the man of the dust from the ground and breathed into his nostrils the breath of life and the man became a living creature. Continuing from what we saw last week, I think, is it 127, God formed man and woman. This kind of zooms in on what was established in chapter one. It explains how there's this canopy over the earth. The conditions are perfect for plant life, for human life to live hundreds of years. Verse eight, and the Lord God planted a garden in Eden in the east. And there he put the man whom he had formed. And out of the ground, the Lord God made to spring up every tree that is pleasant to the sight and good for food. The tree of life was in the midst of the garden and the tree of knowledge of good and evil. And again, we learned last week, the garden is good, but it's not perfect. This is problematic here. We have this tree in our way. Verse 10, a river flowed out of Eden to water the garden and there it divided and became four rivers. The name of the first is the Pishon. It is the one that flowed around the whole land of Havilah where there is gold. And the gold of the land is good. Bdellium and onyx stone are there. I love how specific some of this stuff is. To me, it just, it adds to the authenticity to me of the Bible. It's not myth when you have such specific things, bdellium and onyx and gold, uh, speaking specifically of these rivers and exact locations. Verse 13, the name of the second river is the Gahan. It is the one that flowed around the whole land of Cush. And the name of the third river is the Tigris, which flows east of Assyria. And the fourth river is the Euphrates. So in this section, we wrap up the creation account that continued from Genesis 1. There are some people that say creation is one of those stumbling blocks for people. And um, my daughter is just obsessed with science. She takes every science class she can at the high school. And it frustrates her when she hears that because she says, every time my teacher is talking about something, dad, I swear, like I see it in the scriptures. And it's the people that don't actually examine the scriptures that aren't able to actually make that connection. Famous physicist and astronomer, Dr. Hugh Ross, Vancouver Royal Astronomics, not raised in the church, didn't know the Bible, is researching astronomy. And through researching astronomy, he has all these questions about creation. And through his digging, he gets to this point where he's like, I cannot come up with any other way for origin other than that there had to be a creator. There had to be. This is a guy that he has no biblical foundation, but he's looking at the stars and their origin and all these things. And he's like, there's no way that this is by chance. There's a physicist named Fred Hoyle. I read a book when I first got saved and he is cited in the book, The Case for Faith. Anybody read The Case for Faith by Lee Strobel? 
it was absolutely instrumental in my life as far as like me helping, uh, helping me overcome some of the doubts and the questions that I had. If you're one of those people that um, struggles with something like that, beautifully laid out. Journalist, um, agnostic, atheist, sets out to disprove Christianity. I think they made a movie about it. In his research, he's like, there's gotta be a God. Like all these people he talks to, he's just like, I'm convinced that there is a God. But in the book, he cites Fred Hoyle, who said the probability of all of this coming together by chance is like if you took apart a 747 jet and you scattered all the pieces across an airport, and at the right time, a hurricane came through or a tornado whipped all those pieces together and perfectly assembled every single part of a 747 jet so that you could use it. That is the mathematical probability of everything in the universe coming together to form life. He also said, there has to be a creator. I'll leave you with this final quote from Professor George Wald. Harvard won the Nobel Prize in 1967. He said this, when it comes to the origin of life, we have only two possibilities as to how life arose. One is spontaneous generation arising from evolution. The other is a supernatural creative act of God. There is no third. There is no third possibility. It's only these two. Spontaneous generation was scientifically disproved 100 years ago by Louis Pasteur, Spellanzani, Reddy, and many others. So that leads us scientifically to only one possible conclusion, that life arose as a supernatural creative act of God. He says, philosophically, I cannot accept this. I don't want to believe in God, so I have to choose to believe in what I know is scientifically impossible. Spontaneous generation arising from evolution. Bummer. Bummer, dude. You saw it. Those things are inspiring when you see these brilliant minds that are just like, man, there has got to be a creator. Don, uh, Dr. John Walton of Wheaton said, here's the thing with Genesis 1 and 2. It's so much more than just creation. Creation is beautiful and it's fantastic and it's amazing and it points to an amazing, beautiful God. But he says, listen, we can't get just caught up on that because what we'll end up doing sometimes is to kind of spinning our wheels, talking about how and the origin and all of that. He says what we need to focus on more often than not is the who and the what. He says a lot of what Genesis 1 and 2 talks about is identity, and relationship with the rest of the created world. And that's where we begin now, verse 15 in chapter two. It says, the Lord God took the man and put him in the garden of Eden to work it and keep it. Matt talked last week about um, subduing, having dominion over the word kibosh, actually that there is disorder and man has to come in and actually order things and keep things, um, bring, basically bring peace and shalom and order. Into, the, into this garden. Verse 16, and the Lord God commanded the man saying, you may surely eat of every tree of the garden, but the tree of the knowledge of good and evil you shall not eat. For in the day that you eat of it, you shall surely die. <clears throat> so what we get here in these three little verses, man's purpose, work it and keep it. The word work it is abad. It means to labor or till the ground 
or serve the ground. Keep it is shamar, to watch, to guard, to protect. And then we also get some spiritual direction. He says, the tree of the knowledge of good and evil you shall not eat, for in the day that you eat of it, you shall surely die. He does say you can have everything else. Everything else is available to you, except that thing right there. Your spiritual direction is laid out for you. What we see time and time again, you guys see it as well. We especially see it as pastors. Where these things are lacking in men, there is spiritual decline to the point of death and destruction within the home. Spiritual death, sometimes physical death, aimlessness, hopelessness, despair. Men are called to work and keep and also are given a mandate for a spiritual direction. My wife and I, um, she's a school counselor, and so we will meet with families pretty frequently. And the thing that I always leave with and I come, I take from them all the time, and it's probably the lens that I see so much through is this right here. If the men would engage, if the men would lead, if the men were called to do, would do what they are called to do. And we have some amazing examples of this at Edgewater. We are, we are blessed with some phenomenal male leaders in this body. Amazing dads, husbands, employees, workers, young people all the way through up. But where there is a struggle, it's usually a lack of these things. And I will beat this drum till I die. That's why I do things like we started a thing called Game Changers. I talk about it all the time. It's to bring men together and just encourage them. Equip and encourage them for biblical leadership in the home, church, and in the community. And say, listen, you can do it. You, maybe you dropped the ball. Maybe you've never done it before, but you can do it now. I taught teenagers forever, and I said, it's never too late to do the right thing. It's never too late. Start today. I don't care if you're 65. Start doing these things today. Fulfill the purpose and the calling that God has put on your life. We have discipleship groups. I met with a group of young uh, dads and husbands today. They're just like, hey, we want to get together. We, was, we want to study. We want to uh, glean from one another. We get together every Wednesday, Wednesday morning. We do different groups like that. We have Friday morning men's group. We started a, a marriage study on Monday nights. We do these things called Thrive where we bring couples together and we encourage them. We're going to be doing more and more things like this in, in what we would just call family ministry to encourage husbands to lead, to encourage their wives how to come alongside their husbands and say, you can do it. Let's do this together. So yes, we have a focus on men here, but we need the wives and the single ladies to be aware of what God's expectation is so that you can encourage your husband, you can encourage your sons, you can encourage your brothers in Christ. And let's set a high bar. So the first thing is work. First thing that is brought up here is work. So we have a, <laughs> Chad Hansen and I, and, and now Everett takes this on. With the young guys being in youth ministry, we would say all the time that men give and boys take. That's just how it is. Boys take. They're takers, they need their mom, they need their dad. But if you wanna become a man, you are a giver and you will look for work and you will look for opportunities to serve. You will look for opportunities to give and bless 
and not be a burden, but to actually enhance or make the situation, the environment, the people around you better. So take the hard jobs. Um, a few years ago, I had this interesting encounter at Blockbuster. This is how long ago it was. Blockbuster was still in business. They were going out of business, and I was standing in line, and it was kind of chaos, and things were closing, and um, there's this guy in line, super, super young, and um, there's another dad there. We got our kids, and we're trying to get the movies and video games, whatever it was we're doing, and somebody's like, yeah, so what are you going to do? You know, Blockbuster's closing, you know, all this stuff, and he's like, oh, man, it's awesome. I got, finally got approval for my uh, my unemployment, I just, like the next six months, I'm just going to be set. Like, I don't have to worry about a thing. I don't have to, like, it's just all dialed in. And the other dad kind of did this, like looked at me and he's like, and I was looking at him and it was just like, we were, ah, this isn't right. Like, I understand there's a season for those things. I understand that. And, and you know, you pay into those things and all of that. That's great. But this young man who could go get a great job was talking about how he was ready to just coast at 19, 22, I don't even know. I'm gonna collect my unemployment and just take the next six months and do nothing. And it was like, oh my, dagger. So I was determined to make sure that we didn't raise boys like that, that we would keep repeating this message. Listen, work hard. This is your calling to work hard. My flesh... I know my flesh is lazy. I know my flesh is selfish. I have to remind myself of these things. Listen, men give. I have to repeat that to myself to this day. I don't want my wife outworking me, my kids outworking, anybody here outworking me. I do my part. And then hopefully more than that, I have to train myself for godliness. And so there's a few little ways that I've tried to do this in just in my world I had to examine myself as a coach a few years ago because the message I was teaching my team was not this message. I was constantly harping on referees when I was coaching basketball. And there was one particular instance where I was coaching a select team of like Southern Oregon basketball, all-stars, middle schoolers, as, as much as they could be an all-star, they were a part of this travel group. And we were coaching up in Eugene in this tournament and this official that looked like Jim Gaffigan and he was super, super arrogant my perspective, obviously. And I was letting him know all the things that he was missing throughout the game. And he on the other side of the court just is running down the court doing this to me. And I go, what is this? And he goes, you're talking and I'm not listening. And I go, well, you're not officiating either. You're missing a good game. Bam, gives me a technical. So the other team gets to shoot a couple free throws. They get the ball. The kids laughed. The boys thought it was funny. But in the moment, immediately after, I was like, that's not right. And I was like, man, what kind of witness am I being to these boys? And so our philosophy changed. And we said, we don't want easy. Let everybody else complain about the officials. Let everybody else complain about the missed calls. We would just tell our boys, ignore it. We don't want easy. The other team needs easy. We don't. We'll take hard. Because we're actually not concerned about the game right now. We're concerned about young men 10 years from now. Are they going to be complainers? This isn't fair, blah, 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 blah. Or are they going to say, no, give me hard and you take easy. And I'm super proud of a lot of those boys uh, to this day. 
because of that mentality and just how they bought into that. Life is hard. Are we going to complain about it or are we going to look for the battle? Or are we going to jump in and engage it? And then in my own neighborhood, Abad and Shamar, working it, keeping it, protecting it. I'm probably like you guys, good relationship with some of the other dads in the neighborhood. We text each other, or keep in touch, like going to be out of town, keep an eye on this, watch out for that. Did you see that car? Kids can make fun of us, whatever. We're dads. That's what we do, right? We look out for each other. I have this thing. If I'm going to live this out, if I'm going to work and keep my home and my street, if a rival dad sees my front yard and it is not mowed, it is shame for me. It is shame. If I invite you over for dinner and you show up and my lawn is not mowed, you better let me have it because that is shameful. We have a couple blocks down the road. We have some neighbors that need some help with some things. Um, clearly life is tough for them right now. And randomly I'll see a couch sitting out on the sidewalk. And so I'll leave it there for three-ish days. And a couple of times I'm just like, I've got a pickup truck. I'll just pull up next to it. And there's been a couple of times I'm out there and I'm like loading it, never fails. Like two or three other dads come running out. Let me help you, man, thanks. We gotta get this out of here. But that's what it is. Well, that's how we practically and simply live this out as an example. I'm not going to sit there and make fun of them and not do something about it. I don't know what they're going through. They don't have a pickup. Maybe it's a single mom. Let me help out. Let me jump in. Let me take that. I can handle it. <clears throat> and then in my home, working to bring peace and shalom for my wife and for my kids. They tell my wife that she's the passenger princess. When she gets in the car, she's got her 17 drinks. She's got all of her stuff. She gets to sit there on her phone. Dad's got his cup of coffee and it's wherever we're going, we're locked in, right? That's how it should be. The family's relaxing. They're enjoying themselves. Dad's taking care of things. In fact, actually, I don't think my wife even knows how her car gets fuel in it or how it gets washed. It's just, I think she's just like, I pull in the driveway and the next day it's got a full tank. I don't know. <clears throat> but my reward, the reward I get from it is when I see them laughing or when I see them at peace, when I see them having fun. And this might sound weird, but I love to just watch them sleep. Like my wife works so hard with our kids and in the schools and in ministry. When I see her sleeping, just like really out, I, like that just brings me joy. My kids too, I'm like, oh, they are at peace right now. That's the blessing that I get. <clears throat> we also need girls to understand that little boys take. We unfortunately deal with a lot of parents who have experienced some things with their kids and families going through some tough things where um, teenage boys have not been raised properly and they take physically, emotionally, spiritually. They drain and take things from young ladies that are not theirs. And so we need to teach our girls these things. 
drum beat in their head that little boys take and they will drain you. And there are some adult boys that do the same thing. And if you are sitting here and you're like, man, I'm an adult and I drain my wife. I take from her physically or my girlfriend that I'm living with. I take from her emotionally, physically, and spiritually. Talk with somebody tonight. We'll talk with you. We'll help you. We'll get you through it. That is not God's calling on your life to do that, to live that way. As a man in God's kingdom, that is not how you were called to live. <clears throat> and I, I just got to say, like, I coach sports. So I love it where my boys and I played sports and, you know, football and basketball and all that stuff. We need to teach our young girls that running fast with a, a ball doesn't mean that that person is going to be a good boyfriend or spouse. That is, I mean... I'm serious, like, I'm kind of joking, but I'm kind of serious. Like, we have this thing in our country, culture, whatever, where we put athletes, teenage athletes, on such a pedestal that I've seen them get away with things that are not healthy for them or the people around them. I mean, if you want to know who would maybe be future husband material, you talk to the coach and you say, who's the kid that works the hardest? that doesn't get any attention. That's the, that's, that's the kid that I want to talk to. That's the one that I want to find out more about right there. Not the one that gets all the headlines, gets all the glory. I mean, yeah, all right. Enough ranting on that. <clears throat> Keep it, protect it. Um, there's two very popular... YouTubers, um, really they are social commentary people that one's a psychologist and the other is an influencer. You've probably heard of Andrew Tate and you've probably heard of Dr. Jordan Peterson. Um, their videos are extremely popular right now. They're like two of the most popular people um, on YouTube, whatever social media forum. And the reason is they're, they are telling young men, these things right here that the rest of the world will not tell them. You are made for more than what the rest of culture is teaching you right now. You can raise the bar, men. And it is a message that young men are like ready for. They are hungry for it. Um, so another phrase that we will say from time to time is that the boy goes down so the girl goes free. And... Um, I read this story this past week. There was a little boy, really little. I want to say like, I mean, I want to say like four. And he had a sister that needed his blood. And I think of like the boy goes down, so the girl goes free. This little boy got it because his family talked to him and they said, your sister really, really needs your blood. And he was afraid of the needle. And it's one of those things that could really save her life. And so he thought about it for a little bit. And then he came back and he said, I want to do it. And they said, okay, all right, you're being so brave. And then he hugged them all and said goodbye. And they said, what, what do you mean goodbye? And he's like, well, I'm going to go to heaven now. And they're like, no, you are not going to heaven. You're just, they're going to take some of your blood out and give it to your sister so that she'll be healthy, but you will be fine. 
He's like, whew, huh, relief. What great news. But I was like, what a little stud. This kid was like, my life for hers. That is my sister. Imagine his relief though. I can handle the needle. All right, that's fine. I'll take that. And then the spiritual leadership. We get this warning to stay away from this tree. And symbolically, we know we as men, our homes, I think Matt just talked about it on Sunday. Our, as, our, as our faith goes, so will our homes. And so we have this spiritual leadership, this calling on our life to pour the truth of God's word into our family, to open up the Bible and share the truth of God's word, to pray with our wife and kids, to bring them to church, to get them plugged into ministry, talk about the things of the Lord. This morning, talking with some other dads, and they were like, man, Devotion time with the kids is kind of crazy sometimes. And I'm like, oh man, I remember when they were little. I mean, we're all on the floor and we're trying to share the story and like somebody's hitting somebody and somebody's pulling somebody else. And there's a million questions about things that are kind of off topic and it's crazy, but it's necessary and it's good. And the things that you're modeling right there to them, the importance of God's word, man, get whatever you can get out of it. Do whatever you can. And then we have discussion too, like, You know, Ephesians 5 talks so much about like um, washing your wife with the water of the word. And like, how do you do devotions, husband and wife? And those are difficult things. And And it's not exactly the same for everybody. My wife likes to get up and sit crisscross applesauce with her coffee and three journals and her Bible and all these things and like early in the morning and do it that way. And I like to put on some AirPods and I like to read. And then we like to text each other and like talk about those things later. Man, I read the coolest thing today. Or I was listening to this teaching and we're encouraging one another with the truth of God's word. First Peter 5, 8 says to be aware your enemy, the devil prowls searching whom he will devour or destroy. Where there is no spiritual leadership, there is death and destruction. And Adam fails. Adam fails in his spiritual covering. I panicked as I was reading this because I was like, wait a second. Genesis 3, I know how it starts. And God just told Adam this. And I'm thinking in my mind, like, I know how my wife and I communicate sometimes. And I'm like, did Eve even know about the tree? Wait a second. I don't remember Adam telling it. Wait a second. I'm like reading and I'm like looking and and she knows it. I'm guessing God had to tell her because if it's anything like our home, I forget to pass things on to my wife all the time. God is probably like, I'm just going to let Eve know this right now. Stay away from that. But we can joke about it. But think with me for a minute how destructive this failure of leadership really is. In one chapter... We see every horrible, twisted, evil sin the world has ever known enter into this good thing that God has created. Essentially, and this sounds harsh, but this is essentially, I mean, you think about every horrible thing entering the world, every unimaginable, horrible thing entering into the world. One chapter later, essentially, Adam sends his wife to the front lines for rape, dismemberment, slaughter. His failure to lead and protect, we will see next week, is sad. It's really heartbreaking. 
When we think of the things that the people experience in this world because of sin entering into it, it is heartbreaking. Let's continue, verse 18. So men, Abad, Shamar, and spiritual leadership. Verse 18, then the Lord God said, it is not good that the man should be alone. I will make him a helper fit for him. Now out of the ground, the Lord God formed every beast of the field and every bird of the heavens and brought them to the man to see what he would call them. And whatever the man called every living creature, that was its name. The man gave names to all the livestock, to the birds of the heavens and to every beast of the field. The second thing that we see here that is not good is isolation. I looked up some statistics that I was thinking like, we all know isolation is bad, but what are like some of the, the effects of isolation? Most recent study says significant increase, people who experience extreme isolation, they have a significant increase in premature death, 50% increase in dementia, 32% increase in strokes, and a 400% increase of death for patients who have heart failure. So if if you're somebody who is in isolation, you're probably at a disadvantage if you go into heart failure, obviously. But across the board, isolation leads to all of these um, detrimental health effects. Galatians 6.2 says, that we are to bear one, another, one another's burdens. Acts 2 says in the early church that, the, that they were about the teaching and fellowship. And that's why, that's why we do a meal every week. That's why we have all this time invested in just getting tables out and putting chairs out. We want you guys to connect and have fellowship and man, Some of you are working so hard throughout the week or you live kind of far out. You don't come to town every day. We want a place where you can come and get connected to God's people. We know how important it is. Verse 20, but for Adam, there was not found a helper or an azer in the Hebrew that was fit for him. So the Lord God caused a deep sleep to fall upon the man. And while he slept, he took one of his ribs and closed up its place with flesh. And the rib that the Lord God had taken from the man, he made into a woman and brought her to the man. And then the man said, this is at last bone of my bones and flesh of my flesh. She shall, she shall be called woman or ish because she was taken out of man. Man needed woman. By himself, he wasn't enough. So we know Factually, on the whole, men are biologically stronger, faster, bigger, etc. Across the board, right? With some exceptions, of course. And yet he needs a helper, an azer. It's mentioned in Psalm 33:20, the same word azer, helper, that our soul waits for the Lord. He is our help, our azer, and our shield. Psalm 121 says, I lift up my eyes to the hills. From where does my help, my azer come? My azer comes from the Lord who made heaven and earth. A helper that is literally heaven sent. Like we've said that probably about our wives. She was heaven sent. And that is biblical. A heaven sent helper. 
In Deuteronomy and Exodus, it's used in a life-saving way when there's conflict, a heaven-sent lifesaver. So, I'm not a biologist, but I do know what a woman is. The Bible says that she is a heaven-sent helper, a life-saving helper. The word isha means opposite of man. And I'm so glad. I love that my wife is opposite of me. It's my favorite thing about my wife, actually, is that she's not me. Adam is blown away. Man's first recorded words we hear are from Adam. Wow. Wow. His response is poetic. She's amazing. She's literally incomparable. There is nothing that he can compare her to, literally. And so it should be for our own wives, not compared to anything. We should say, wow. God uses Adam to give us more words to describe woman than any other creature. He sets this precedent that connects women and words. I probably should just leave that there. Just kidding. I'm just kidding. Um, words tend to be easier for ladies. I mean, if we're honest, words are, are usually easier for them. In fact, neuroscientists have found with young kids, if you want to find out what like causes their brain to like um, the neurotransmitters to like spark and light up when they're little, for boys, it's objects in flight. So if you throw a ball, if there's a plane or anything like that, their brains are just like exploding, right? So they always want to play catch or something's, you know, maybe they're jumping or whatever off a couch. For girls, it's what? Words. It's words. That's what causes the brain to start firing is the words. And I have a daughter who has a lot of words and I love it, but it's different for me. So... What an absolute gift God gives the world when he creates women. Nothing graces the earth with the contrast and power, the contrast of power and fragility that a woman does. It's an absolute thing of beauty. On one hand, you can have the mama bear. Don't mess with her babies, right? You will see mama bear come out. But on the other hand, she can be in the bathroom trying to take a bath and there can be the tiniest spider up in the corner of the bathroom and you will hear the blood curling scream and you get to come save them. It's a beautiful thing that God has created in woman. Um, Matt has done a teaching um, from First Peter that I use with premarital counseling. Um, if you ever like want good, solid teachings for friends or family or younger ones on um, men and women, it's if you're a note taker, you could write this down. It's First Peter, and it's from August 2020. And I, I have all my premarital counseling. I say, listen to this one on men, listen to this one on women, and it really just lays it out beautifully, Edgewater's beliefs and theologically where we're at. So. Verse 24, therefore a man shall leave his father and his mother and hold fast to his wife and they shall become one flesh. We have the establishment of marriage. The first institution that God establishes here in chapter two, marriage. Why? What is the purpose of marriage? There's three things. Number one, we see procreation. In Genesis one, he says to be fruitful and to multiply. 
build God's kingdom, but also children are a blessing. The second thing, by the way, on that note, I find it interesting. Most of the world is saying we need to have less kids because like the climate or something, I don't know. Is that what it is? The environment, the climate? If you have less kids, it's gonna save everybody, I guess. I, I'm like, anytime I talk to Christian couples, I'm like young couples having kids. I'm like, just keep having a bunch because the rest of the world isn't. So we'll just outnumber everybody. So if you're a young married couple, please have a bunch of Christian kids. Everybody else is decreasing, so just have a bunch of them. The second thing is sanctification, and maybe the biggest one. Having a spouse grows you into the person that God has called you to be. Nothing shined a bigger spotlight on my selfishness than having a spouse and kids. I realized, man, oh man, I'm a selfish person. And I wanted to be better. And by God giving me a gracious and loving and patient wife, I've been able to grow. First Peter 3, 7 is, is another scripture that has really been uh, kind of impressed upon my heart as I think about what it means to be sanctified, to dwell with my wife and understanding. There are so many things in my life that I've just said, eh, that's kind of my wife and I don't really get it. So, but that's neglecting the responsibility that God has given me to actually dwell with her and to understand her way of thinking. Like every season, we need 15 new couch pillows for every couch in the house. That's just a thing that I have to get being married to my wife. But, but seriously, when I stop and take that responsibility seriously from God, I'm actually growing closer to him. Sanctification can take root in my heart. I can become more mature. I can see what God has called for me as I dwell with my wife and understanding. And then the third thing, covenant. The third thing we get in marriage is covenant, the promise your job might be contractual, your mortgage, a contract. Some friendships kind of even have this give and take contract to them. But with our wives or with our husbands, we are in covenantal relationship. And the beautiful thing about that is Ephesians 5 says, this big chapter on how marriage works, lays it all out to be loving and serving. It's where we get the love and respect Wives, respect your husbands. Husbands, love your wives. But the beautiful thing is, at the end of it, Paul says, listen, here's the deal. What I'm telling you about marriage, the mystery of it is, I'm talking about Christ and the church. And so what we get to see in this covenantal relationship that God establishes is Jesus actually saying, listen, sacrificial love means we love and serve each other. And whether you're in a married relationship or not, that is the way of life for a Christian, to be loving and to serve others and to esteem others higher than ourselves so that we might be a picture of the church. There are, I'm gonna jump ahead here. So many things to cover here. But if our marriages and our relationships can be a picture of the church, I kind of have used this example recently with people. I was reading about 
in the late 1960s, I think it was, the Masters, um, well, CBS was broadcasting the Masters, the golf tournament, in color for the first time. And up until that point, everything on TV is in black and white. And then now at this point, it's in color. And you have all these people in Arizona and Las Vegas and Beverly Hills and Hollywood and LA with a lot of money. They like to golf. And for the first time, they're watching the Masters in color, in desert areas with not a lot of water. And it stirred up in this thing, this thing in them. They saw in Augusta, Georgia, this luscious, beautiful green grass with these amazing pops of color and the flowers and things. And they were like, we want that. They were rich and powerful and they had the money and the means to say, I don't care if I'm in the desert, get me some water. I want the same thing that they have in Augusta, Georgia, right here in Las Vegas, right here in Scottsdale, Arizona, right here in LA, Beverly Hills. And they did it. There's been some controversy about that, but they did it. And I think the Christian life, whether you're single, whether you're married, whatever it is, I think the Christian life should look like the masters in color to an unbelieving world. I think a world that lives in a Hollywood type desert or Vegas type desert, Sin City, whatever, should look at the Christian's life right here in Edgewater, right here in little old Grants Pass and say, look at that. Look at it's fresh and luscious. There's, there's water, Holy Spirit, water providing life to that husband and wife and their kids and that family. That's how it's meant to be right there. That's what I want. And then we as believers, as Matthew 5.16 says, let your light so shine before men that people will see your good works and glorify your father in heaven, that we would shine so bright in color to a lost world that they would say, I need to have that. I want Jesus in my home as well. That's how I wanna live. Let me leave you with this. Verse 25 says, the man and his wife were both naked and were not ashamed. Is this the last time that man stands before God without shame? Genesis 2. Is it the last time that man stands before God without shame? It's not. It's not the last time because of Jesus. 1 John 1.9 says, if we confess our sins, he's faithful and just to forgive us our sins and to cleanse us from all unrighteousness. Isaiah says, but the Lord God helps me. Therefore, I have not been disgraced. Therefore, I have set my face like a flint and I know that I shall not be put to shame. Psalm 34 says, I sought the Lord and he answered me and delivered me from all my fears. Those who look to him are radiant and their faces shall never be ashamed. Romans 8, there's therefore now no condemnation. Romans 10, everyone who believes in him will not be put to shame. Isaiah 61, instead of your shame, there shall be a double portion. Instead of your shame, because of Jesus, you will get a double portion. Instead of dishonor, they shall rejoice in their lot. Therefore, in their land, they shall possess a double portion. They shall get everlasting joy. In place of our shame, because of the work that Jesus did on the cross, we get everlasting joy. That is amazing. Because I know who I was before the age of 24. And I was not the guy that I just told you about. I was not the person that I just shared with you. 
until I submitted my life to Christ after the age of 24, I would be ashamed to come before God. But when I learned that Jesus took that from me and that these scriptures are real, I have experienced everlasting joy and it does not make sense. If you tonight have a shame that is holding you back, don't leave. Come talk with one of us. Talk with somebody that you're sitting with, maybe that invited you. You can have everlasting joy. We'll pray with you. Submit your life to Christ. Live in color like you were meant to and get everlasting joy for your shame. Amen. Father God, we thank you for this promise. Father God, I thank you for redemption. I thank you for your grace. Thank you for your mercy. I thank you that you give a simple and clear way for us to live out this life. I thank you that every single one of us has access to you because of the work done on the cross. I pray that we would be those that would live a life that glorifies you and that draws people to you. We love you. We pray these things in Jesus' name. Amen. God bless you guys. Have a great night. Thank you.